continuing our series on the image of God and what that means. You're probably wondering how many more sermons can I get out of Genesis 2? I could get a lot more. Um, Martin Luther described Genesis 1 through 3 as, as trees that you, when you shake it, just the fruit keeps falling. Um, I think that's true. Uh, this morning we have the entirety of chapter 2, which is important, I think, for our theme this morning. So, uh, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word to us from Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the, the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Dilium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took out one of his ribs and closed it up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray you illumine our minds and our hearts by your spirit this morning.
teach us what it means to be creatures, um, teach us the goodness of boundaries and limits as your creatures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To be created in God's image um, is to be a creature. And to be a creature is to be finite. And you could say that the essence of creatureliness is finitude. And this is a word you should know. This is a word you should have in your vocabulary, finitude. Finitude is the state of having limits and bounds. Um, to be finite means we're limited. It means we are bound by space. We're bound by time. We're, we're bound by, by matter or material. We're bound uh, by capacities. And these limits or these bounds are not things to mourn, <laughs> uh, but actually things to celebrate as good something to embrace with joy. Um, it is a good thing to be a creature with limits. This is part of God's original design uh, for us as human beings. Nevertheless, I think it's very hard for us to accept limits and bounds <laughs> as something that is good. We often don't experience uh, limits as a good thing for us. Um, there is no place where the refusal to accept human normal limits is on more display than the Olympics, uh, which you know, the Winter Olympics just finished up last week. Um, part of what makes the Olympics such an engrossing thing to watch is you, wit you witness people pushing the boundaries and limits of, of what we thought was possible to do with the human body, right? With these incredible feats. And most of the time in the Olympics, I think there's reasonable and a healthy uh, sense of, of limits and boundaries, and there's lots of rules and regulations around competition. Um, that keeps it from getting out of control. But there are times at which you see the sort of dark underbelly of, of sports, right? Where you see human beings being pushed beyond what seems uh, healthy, uh, healthy boundaries and how we, we interact or how we should be. And, and I think this is on vivid display in, in the, the women's figure skating competition. Remember the uh, Russian prodigy, this 50-year-old world, 15-year-old girl, uh, Camilla uh, Valavia. She was, you know, coming into the competition considered to be like the favorite to win gold, and she's doing quad jumps and all this stuff. And in the midst of competition, she uh, tested positive, or it was a test that she had been done where she tested positive for banned substances. They allowed her to continue uh, competing as they adjudicated the, the, the test. Um, but she, you know, a dark cloud sort of came over her, became the sort of focus of all the attention, and she became the object of much scorn for many people. And during her very last uh, skate, where she had the potential to win the whole thing, gold potentially, if it was given to her, um, she just begins to fall. It's like she begins to crack, and you can almost see it. We watched it, and you kind of see this 15-year-old girl just sort of mentally start breaking down as she's uncharacteristically falling on jumps that she normally does you know, very easily. And it was, a, it was a very tragic sort of train wreck sort of moment. Um, and then she, of course, breaks down in tears right after her competition. And she comes off the ice, and her coaches start to scold her rather than comfort her. And they're like, why did you give up, right? 
It was a very uh, heartbreaking scene to watch. And what you kind of see there, and, and I don't think it was just you know, bad Russian coaches, right? It's easy to hate on Russian coaches right now. But it was clear that as a teenager, as this young woman, she was a victim of a cruel system that failed to protect her and, and failed to set healthy boundaries and expectations for her. Now, this might seem like a really extreme example that very few of us will ever kind of have to deal with in our daily life, but I don't think it's as far away um, as we might think. Because we live in a culture, we live in a culture that makes demands of us that are wildly unrealistic, <laughs> uh, out of line with our actual creaturely limits. We live in a society in which our primary source of worth, our, our, our source of social recognition, um, comes based upon individual merit and achievement. The way you prove yourself, the way you, you're recognized as being valuable and belonging is, you you, is achievement. And so, within this achievement culture, there is this constant sense, I think, that many of us, most of us, live under, that we're never doing enough. Do you ever have that sense? You're never doing enough. You're never working long enough. You're sleeping too long. You don't get as much done in the day as you should get done. That you should exercise more. That you should know more. That you should be more efficient with your time. That you should be able to travel further. That you should be able to make more money than you're making. Right? These, these are just kind of the cultural messaging that sort of washes over us day in and day out. And social media and advertising culture is, is bombarding us with this stream of inspirational messages all the time. You see this in the Olympics, right? Infinite possibility. Infinite possibility. If you're willing to dream the dream, nothing is out of reach. If you're able to dream the dream and be determined and work hard, you have infinite possibility, right? And yet, again, most of these expectations that we have of ourselves, that our culture sort of imposes upon us and that we, we gladly accept, are wildly out of touch with our finitude. <laughs> what is realistic about being a human being? And nevertheless, what we do is we, we, we internalize them. We internalize them. And all this cultural messaging leads to just high amounts of stress, anxiety, and just dissatisfaction with our day-to-day -day lives. That, you know, it's inadequate, that we are inadequate. And so we're often feeling exhausted. Um, we're often feeling just constantly busy and overwhelmed. And then we're always sort of seen in the sort of social media world, like we're always comparing ourselves to people who seem to have superhuman capacities to do and to achieve, right? As we're, we're always like, man, I, I, I could be able to, why can't I do that, right? And I think what this leads to us is this, this sense, for many of us, this creeping sense of guilt. We just feel guilt because of our limits. You ever feel guilty because of your limits? We're guilty because of our finitude. And so we even start apologizing we apologize for our finitude. Um, how many, do you do this? Do you apologize for being a finite, bounded creature? I'm sorry, I didn't have the time for this. 
Do you find yourself apologizing that you wish you could have accomplished more in the day? Apologizing to others that you didn't meet their expectations? Apologizing to yourself or being disappointed in yourself that you couldn't do more in the day? Friends, finitude, to be finite is not a sin. (laughs) To be finite, to have limits, is not a sin. Our limits as human beings are not a consequence of a fallen, sinful world. They are part of God's original design as human beings. It is good to have limits. Finitude is something good that we should embrace. And in fact, in the biblical world, true wisdom is found when you learn to live within your limits. That's where true wisdom is found, learning to live within your limits. And not only that, is that true liberation and freedom as a human being is found when you live within your limits of what God designed you to be. Now, this morning, I just want to, I want to give a positive exposition to four boundaries or four limits of what it means to be a human being that we see in Genesis 2. There's more than four, but we only have time for two. Each of these could be a sermon unto itself. But I want to give you the categories and pray that the Holy Spirit will use those categories for you to do deeper self-reflection on the ways in which perhaps you are trying to live beyond your limits. So the first limit that we see in, the Genesis, in Genesis 2, the first good limit we see is time. Time. To be a creature is to live within time. Creation of human beings is preceded um, in the Genesis 2 here by um, three verses of comment on God's creation of time and his creation of the Sabbath. Look here at verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. And so God rested, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. Now, human beings were created on the sixth day. Um, This is, in a sense, comes after really the, the, the conclusion of chapter one, and God rested on the seventh day. What, what's important to see here is this, is that um, woven into the very fabric of the created order is time and the rhythms of time and seasons. Um, there's day and there's night, and then there's the sun and the moon and the stars that regulate the seasons of the year, right? Um, the, cre- the creature is bound by time, um, we live within time, not outside of it, and we, also, we learn later on is that um, to keep the Sabbath, that God creates the Sabbath as a way of distinguishing between uh, the, the days of the week, but our time of work and the time of rest, right? And that we ought to keep the Sabbath, we learn later on. We ought to keep the Sabbath because it's a way of learning to align ourselves with time, with God's time, and live according to the order of time. So again, um, there's so much here with Sabbath rest, but Sabbath is not just a kind of ritualized aspect that we've constructed about time, but um, in the biblical world, Sabbath is part of the structure of creation. It's part of the very structure of creation. And so the, the rhythms of Sabbath need to mark our lives. Now, there is great wisdom. There is great wisdom 
and learning to let our lives be aligned with the rhythms of time. And this, again, there's a lot here. There's a rhythm of work and rest, but of, of also seasons. And I'm not just talking about, you know, summer, you know, summer, fall, winter, spring, but seasons of life as creatures. We, there are different seasons in your life when you're a child or when you're a teenager, where you're in college or whether you're getting married or having children. These are different seasons, and there's different rhythms to those seasons. And wisdom is knowing what season you're in, right? Paying attention to that. But I think most importantly, especially for us in our culture of overwork, is the importance of the rhythm of Sabbath, of the importance of rest, in keeping time with God's time, because we are prone to overwork. And again, it's so hard for us just, you know, constantly through our phones, you know, we're getting emails from work or text or whatever. We have a hard time turning off. Let me just ask you a few probing questions before we move on to the next point. Do you attend to the boundaries of time, the limits of time in your life? Do you take these seriously? Or are you always trying to overcome the clock, (laughs) trying to stuff as much as humanly possible into one day to eke out all of the possibility that you can? Um, To be a creature means you need rest, regular rest. You need to sleep on average. Every human being needs around eight hours of sleep a night. Um, That's, again, part of built in. Like, you have day and you have night, right? Nighttime is for sleeping. (laughs) Nighttime is for sleeping. That's how it happens, right? Do you sleep enough? Are you burning the candle at both ends and barely sleeping? And again, remember what I said about seasons in life. And so those of you with very small children, it's very hard to sleep through the night. But you feel it, right? You need sleep. Do you keep Sabbath? Do you have a healthy rhythm in your work week between, you know, time of work, time of rest? See, again, to be working constantly is not a sign of strength, and it is not a virtue. It is not a virtue. You, are, you should not be applauded for overworking. <laughs> it, is, it is actually just a sign that you're a slave. The Israelites couldn't stop working. Pharaoh said, no, you got to keep working. The difference between us and, and is that we don't have a Pharaoh out there telling us we have to keep working. We've internalized Pharaoh. We're just busy, 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 always working, never resting. Okay, so as creatures, we are bound by time. The next one I want to draw your attention to is, is that to be a creature is to be mortal. To be mortal. We are mortal creatures. Uh, and this is, again, not just a consequence of the fall and of sin. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The first thing you see here is that we are created of the very same substance as the rest of creation, dust. We have the same organic material as monkeys and mice. We share the same. We are not made of heavenly dust, of heavenly substance that's just sort of like ongoing and, and just sort of does its own life-giving thing. We are made of the same stuff as the rest of creation, which makes us mortal. Our life is not in ourselves. It comes from out ourselves. And the, that's the other point here, as you see, is that, that God forms a man from the dust, and then he breathes into him the breath of life. And the word breath there is the word spirit as well. It's like the spirit animates us, brings us life. 
See, to be mortal is to realize that I don't have life in myself, that life comes from outside of me, and that it is a limited quantity, and that I can't give myself more of it. That's what it means to be mortal. I think this raises some interesting questions with respect to was there death prior to sin in the fall? This is a, I actually think there possibility there was. Death, of course, has a different meaning in Genesis 3. Um, but you have that, you think about the, how biological processes and evolution happen, right? Death is part of that. Now, are we going to say that all of this is just a consequence of sin in the fall? There's a lot of mystery here, but the fact of the matter is this. However, whatever, if there was death or not, human beings were not created eternal in the sense that, you know, okay, like the Energizer Bunny that just keeps going and going and never runs out. No. There was always a sense prior to sin coming into the world that our life was limited and that we depended upon God for our continued existence. And I think to recognize our mortality is it puts us in a place of dependence. Mortality shows us that we are dependent creatures. Again, I don't possess life in myself. I cannot give myself life or extend my life on my own. And so awareness of our mortality, the limitedness of my life, should humble me as a creature and should turn me to God as a source of life. It should teach me that I'm not in control. I'm not in control of my life. I'm not in control of the times and the seasons of my life. I'm not in control of the time of my death. This should lead me to see that my life depends upon God it is not something that I am entitled to, that I possess as something that is my own because I deserve it, or I've given it to myself. And I think what this, this should lead us to, this sense of dependence, should lead us to a posture of gratitude. A posture of gratitude. The exercise of gratitude is one of the ways that we embrace our limits, that we embrace our creatureliness, because it's, it's just a, a constant reminder when I'm thankful for getting something that is good, even things that I need every day, it just reminds me, it's like, don't take that for granted. <laughs> don't take water for granted, air for granted, health for granted. My life is a gift. Your lives are a gift. And gratitude is one of the ways that we stay uh, in that, that posture as dependent creatures. Okay, so the, to be a creature is to be limited by time, limited by mortality, and third is to be limited by place. Place. That's the third, one of the, the third boundary we see here. Being located as a creature in a specific place. Um, it's good. It's a good thing. And, you know, you, this theme of place is all over um, Genesis 2. Um, the reality is that you can only live in one place at a time. <laughs> That's part, right? I mean, it seems like, duh, right? But you can only live in one place at a time. Um, the, the, the theme of place is everywhere in, in, in Genesis 2, right? You, we talk about the garden in Eden, and twice it says in chapter 2 that God placed the man in the garden. Placed. God put him there. Um, and, and what's fascinating, when you, if, you're, if you're listening as we're reading, 
um, all the, the geographical details, right, got four rivers, right? You have this sense that Eden, the land of Eden, and the garden is like between these four rivers that are flowing. And, and not only that, it's a place rich of natural resources. There's gold, and there's dillium, and there's onyx stone. You're like, huh, that's interesting. Why is that? A, there's all kinds of trees, right? There's trees that are really attractive, that have lots of fruit. There's a, there's a lot of description of place here. The garden is this cultivated place in which God places the, human, the original human couple. And I think this is important. Place is an essential part of our identity and our experience of ourselves in the world. This is something we don't, again, reflect on, and there's so much here to, to explore. But, but I, I want to make one application. Uh, connecting with place, the place where God has put you, is, is really important and essential to your flourishing as a human being. Um, to connect with places, to embrace in your heart um, where you live. That's what it means. To, to, it's to embrace in your heart where God has put you. doesn't mean you're here forever or wherever God has put you or you can't move around. But I, I think that you only really find yourself as a human being fully when you've really embraced where you live, where you fully inhabit the place you live. And I think one of the major problems of modern society is that we have this, this, this persistent sense of disconnection from place. Um, we move around constantly. We're kind of like Cain. We're restless wanderers on the face of the earth, not really connected anywhere, not invested anywhere, moving around like nomads, not fully inhabiting, not investing, always dreaming of someplace better, you know, I've lived now in Milwaukee almost 17 years. I've lived here longer than I have anywhere else. I don't think of myself as a Milwaukeean because I grew up in Florida. And for the first maybe four or five years I lived here, I disliked this place. Other places I lived seem much better than this place. And I was looking forward after the completion of my PhD of moving somewhere else. But God changed my heart, right? God changed my heart. The existence of this church is part of God's change of my heart, where I embrace Milwaukee in my heart. And that changed me as a person, and it changed my experience of this city. See, again, I think we're often tempted to imagine and dream of moving to other places, like, they're, oh, they're gonna, they'll be so much better. And we don't really live where we're at. And the Lord moves you around, and I'm not saying you have to stay in one place forever. But we, we often live, we're sort of like commuters. We're always in commuter mode. Not really engaged with that which is around us. Not actually even appreciating what is before us. You know, God, he, as creatures, we need to embrace the limits of place and fully inhabit where the Lord has put us. Because it is his providence that you are here. It is his providence that you are here. And so the question is, well, Lord, what are you doing? Why am I here? And what do you have for me here? Okay, so we have creature as conditioned by time, as conditioned by mortality, as conditioned by place, but finally of relationships. Um, the fourth and final boundary here is that to be a creature is to need other human beings. <laughs> That's, other human beings are the, the last and most difficult boundary, because it's a boundary that's always moving. Uh, the, then the Lord God said, 
It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a fit helper or a helper fit for him. See, God originally creates the man alone, um, and this wasn't a mistake. This is part of God's design. Um, and in part, this is for the man to sense his aloneness, that the rest of creatures are not like him, and that he needs one like himself. But I want to draw your attention in particular to the statement that it was not good. It was not good for the man to be alone. This is a really important statement because everything else up to this point about creation is that God says it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And here God says it is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so he creates a fit helper. Now, there's a lot about this story that, that is central to our theology of marriage, but, but when you read this story, you shouldn't just think marriage. This is really all, this is a prototype, an archetype for all human community. We need one another. It is not good for us to be alone. We were built for a relationship. You were built for a relationship. You need relationships with other human beings, relationships of kinship, relationships of nurture, relationships in which you're known and, and you know others. It is a need in your life that is as fundamental and as primary as water and air <laughs> and food. You wither and die without human relationships. Part of the challenge of the pandemic is that we have been separated from one another. And I thank God for Zoom, but I want to say this again. Virtual community is not real community. It is not, and I want to speak to the, to the lens here. I love you, and there's things that keep us away from community. But embodied community, there is no virtual substitute for that. Because you're a body and we relate through the body. And so I encourage and challenge you to prioritize relationships in your life. I mean, God, that's how God rigged it. That's how God created us, is that we need one another. And so, <clears throat> one of the ways that we embrace the limits of our creatureliness is that we attend to the relationships in our life, the primary relationships in our lives. And so, do you attend to the relationships in your life? Or do you simply take them for granted? And I think our culture often wants to tempt us to think that, well, those relationships are there, and to often prioritize your career or your hobbies over those relationships. But cultivating and maintaining healthy relationships in your life has to be a priority, because to neglect those, to let those sort of fall away to the side, um, it is, to, it, is to, it is to violate a boundary <laughs> of your need for other people. There is deep wisdom and there is freedom and flourishing when we prioritize these relationships. Okay. Again, each of these little points has a sermon on its own. It deserves... So to be a creature is, is to be bound by time and place and mortality and, and other people, human relationships. Now, there were two trees that were in the center of the garden. There was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these trees symbolized the God-designed limits of what it meant to be a creature. In a way, you think about that tree, the tree both trees, but the trees symbolize our limits, right? And you recall that God says, you eat of all the trees, except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree represented a boundary that we were not 
permitted to cross. But then there was also the tree of life right next to it, or at least in the vicinity. And the tree of life represented God's life-giving presence. God's life-giving presence from which we are to eat in order to be and to survive within creation. Not eating from the tree of knowledge was the one boundary and limit that God imposed upon human beings. And when we violated that boundary, one of the consequences was not just death, but that the tree of life now was taken from us. We were barred from that tree and eating of that tree. And God warned that when we crossed the boundary, what would happen is death. You shall surely die. Now what's interesting here is that Adam doesn't die immediately, which, which raises the question that death here is meant not simply biological death, but a different kind of death, a death that is expressed in the form of the curse. And you see this in Genesis 3 explicitly, that, that the curse is a manifestation of death. But, but I, want to, I want you to think more deeply. I want to give you a, maybe a, a new category for you to think about violating boundaries and the meaning of sin. See, what happens in the curse is you have an undoing of creation. You have a reversal of creation. To back to a, plate into, a place into an estate of non-order and chaos. Um, Genesis, the very first um, verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, was without form and void, and there was darkness over the face of the earth. And that, that, that phrase, form and void, is the Hebrew word tohu vavohu, and it, it has this idea, idea of that, you know, God sort of creates, there's this mass ball of chaos uh, wasteland, uh, it's completely inhospitable to life or survival. And then when God begins to, to create, what he does is he, he starts setting in place boundaries, right? He separates the day from the night, the heavens from the earth, the land from the sea, the birds of the air from the fish of the sea and the lands, and then finally, the male and female. God's creating activity is to set in place the right limits and the right boundaries so that the creation becomes a place in which things can live and survive and to flourish. And so what sin is, is a kind of undoing of that. And what comes from that is a sort of chaos, disorder. I mean, look at what's happening in the Ukraine, right? When you violate boundaries at so many levels, War breaks out, violence breaks out, chaos, mayhem, death, right? Now, when we as creatures seek to live beyond our designed limits by God, what we do is we put our lives and right on the edge of chaos and disorder, right? We often do this by pushing ourselves. And, and so, like, when you're feeling stress and you're feeling anxiety and you're feeling fear, and you have all these emotions that just are like ruling you, that is a sign, right, that there's, there's chaos. There's, there's, there's chaos there that's inhospitable to life. Now, sometimes this is not your fault, right? It's simply imposed upon you by forces outside of yourself. But oftentimes, we, we ourselves create the disorder and chaos of our lives by pushing ourselves. Okay, so where's God in all this? Where is God? The answer is this, is that we find God, we find God at the boundary lines of what makes us creatures. 
We find God precisely at the boundary lines of what makes us creatures. We find God's presence and engagement with us right there where we meet our creaturely limits in Sabbath and my need for rest. The Lord is presence. I find God when I have this deep sense of my own dependence as a creature. I find God, we find God in his providential leading of our lives where he puts us in certain places where we live and reflect, Lord, why have you put me here? But I know you put me here. We find God and experience his embodied love and care through the relationships and people that he has put in our lives, and he loves us through them. See, when we embrace our limits as creatures, we also find the presence of the God who created us and relate to him. The most remarkable affirmation of the goodness of our creaturely limits is the incarnation of God's Son. Paul says, he who, was without, who, he who was in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus was born of a woman. He nursed on his mother's breast. He needed sleep. He needed friends. He was vulnerable to pain and to death. It's quite incredible to ponder, right? The infinite one became a finite creature. The one beyond time entered history. The one without a body took on human flesh. The one who is omnipresent everywhere. Present becomes localized as a Palestinian Jew. The one who has life in himself dies immortal on the cross. The one who in perfect love and fullness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit became son, brother, and friend. See, um, the great mystery of salvation is that Jesus, in Jesus Christ, God saves us not by suspending <laughs> our limits, by overcoming the boundaries of what it means to be human, and doing what we couldn't do. No, Jesus saves us precisely by submitting fully to being a creature. Fully and completely being a creature to the point where he tasted and experienced death. And I'll conclude with what Paul says here. And being found in the form of a human, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Amen. Lord, the mystery of salvation is great. That um, The miracle of salvation is all the more miraculous when we consider who you are and what you became, and that you saved us as creatures. As the creator, you became a creature and you saved us. Lord, um, all of us in one way or another are feel that our boundaries are often unclear and that our hearts hover um, over the chaos and disorder of, a, of life. Lord, we pray that we would find our peace in you, that we would learn how to be humble creatures in your presence, um, to trust and to depend upon you, and to be able to take Jesus' words about not worrying about tomorrow um, to heart and to know, Lord, that you care for us. 
we give you thanks that he became a creature and he showed us the way, Lord. And it's in him that we have life and salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.